Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ricky at a certain point realized that we were gonna have to we we're gonna have to roll it back a little bit because the scene as is, I don't think Netflix would have gone for it. <laughs> I really don't. Wow. Lost for words. It's just... Um, uh, how long did it take you to... Master the double nostril recorder. A few hours a day for a few weeks, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Blimey, it did me, I did. <laughs> All worth it now, though. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I haven't got a job. No? No, because I've got lots of time. <laughs> Use it wisely. <laughs> Funny, because it was only this morning I was thinking my life was worthless. And then... Makes you think, doesn't it? Yeah. Get a picture. Recorders in. Let's dig them up there. There you go. Fuck me. From Afterlife, it's Ethan Lawrence. Ethan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Tom. How are you? I am all the better. Well, I, 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 I did say this, all the better for speaking to you, which I am. And don't get me wrong, but uh, before we sat down today, I thought... It, it sounds less sincere the second time. It's only because, <laughs> it's only because before we sat down today, I thought I need to finish watching season three. So I know what we're talking about. And, um, oh, it got me a bit there, which is weird in the office. Like, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a heartbreaker at the end, isn't it? Oh, you did it at work as well. Yeah. It's a rough one, but, but it's a beautiful series. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I really appreciate it. I, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a labour of love. And I think, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really, really thrilled with it. How did you find the, the reaction to, to the third series? I mean, it's, it's almost been overwhelming. Like, the amount of um, people who have got in contact with me to, like, talk about not only, like, the funny parts, but also, like, to share their own stories of grief and, like, you know, talk about it and open it up it's really it's opened up my world to lots of conversations about about grief and about loss and like i'm so honored that people want to share that with with me and you know this this whole experience has been mind-blowing and uh, i could not be happier with how it all turned out in the end the world is moves in mysterious ways and, and it came to light that you're also a massive wrestling fan yes um we were we were sort of semi-introduced by way of twitter yeah because uh, i was 
I was tweeting about um, how I was in a bad mood, so I was just going to lie down and watch wrestling until I passed out. <laughs> and uh, somehow you were then brought into my orbit. And uh, we, we connected through that way. And I did watch wrestling until I passed out that night. So and, it was all good. Out of interest, what wrestling were you watching? Uh, I'm at, at present, um, and I, I don't know if it will change, but uh, I am a huge AEW fan. Um, it's that's sort of been my, my bread and butter. It's what brought me back into watching wrestling after a long time in the wilderness. Uh, so yeah, that's that. That was it. I mean, that must have been a that must have been a dynamite that I was watching that night. It's amazing how so many people uh, who were lapsed fans have been brought back through AEW because it's it's certainly got that old school wrestling vibe that I think so many of us are still chasing, hasn't it? I think that's it. I think it, the the old school vibe is exactly what it is. Like it's just point A to point B booking, and sometimes that's all you need. Like you know, a good story well told. And like, you know, I, I touch in well, I touch in with WWE essentially once a year and that's the, the, the rumble. And uh, I, I, I understand you have you have feelings about this year's rumble. Uh, so we don't we don't need to go into that. Uh, <laughs> you, you've seen you, you've seen the rant that I went on then. That's uh, good to know. I, I agreed with every word. Thank you. Like it broke my heart to say <laughs> that it was the worst rumble I'd ever seen. It genuinely did. I say it with no joy. I know some fans take great joy in dunking on WWE. I get no joy from saying I hated the rumble. The rumble's my Christmas as a wrestling fan. It's the best. It's the best step. It's the best time of the year. It's like the Christmas I didn't get Mr. Frosting. <laughs> That's what we're dealing with. But you know what? We're here to celebrate the wrestling that, that you love, Ethan. The particular matches, the particular moments that you love. And uh, we're going to send you, metaphorically, onto a desert island. And whilst you're on that island, you can watch three wrestling matches. You can choose three wrestling matches to burn onto a DVD or a Blu-ray uh, or, uh, or watch on a laptop uh, next to some of Brian's porn. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, you choose those three wrestling matches. So what would you like your first match to be, Ethan? Well, we, we may as well, since we're, since we're on the subject, I, I it would be remiss of me not to include a rumble. Yeah. Because it is it is my favourite step. But then that then opens up so many possibilities. Like, do you go for one in the year of my birth, 92, Ric Flair, I'm going for number three all the way through. It's not fair to Flair. Like, wonderful rumble. Do you go for 2001? That's a great one. That one's so much fun. Uh, 08, John Cena's return, and an absolutely stacked rumble all the way through because at that point, I think WWE potentially had the best mid-card they ever had. 2010, the passion of the Michaels. Uh, you know, do you go for that? Do you, do you go for 2020? Brock's dominance, uh, and then the Claymore kick heard around the world, but no, no. I know which one I'm going for. It's 2018. It has to be. Okay, that's a, okay. So why does 2018 get the nod over all of those other ones? I just feel that it's a rumble that has absolutely everything. Like from a great choice for a winner, a great choice for a final six, even. But then you go back all the way to the beginning of the rumble, and you have the the humiliation of Heath Slater. Genuinely, one of the funniest things I think I've ever seen in wrestling. Uh, he comes in, I think, at number five, gets immediately flattened by Baron Corbin. And then the next five entrants also flatter, flatten him. And then Birthday Seamus comes out. Big old Birthday Seamus. 
chucks Heath Slater into the ring and then is immediately eliminated by Heath Slater. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. I love it. But I just think in terms of sort of like the build of a rumble, like every sort of aspect of it, the comedy aspect, like, you know, the, the stretch in the middle. And uh, I mean, even some of the returns were wonderful. And at that final six, it always makes me smile so much when you have the new blood versus the old blood. And Rey Mysterio is there standing in between John Cena and Randy Orton looking like they're very, very tiny child. And, uh, it also, for me, features one of the uh, one of the best uh, calls that um, uh, Jerry the King Lawler ever made. Uh, when John Cena emerges and the boos start immediately just raining down like the good good five seconds of booze then john cena sucks john cena sucks and then just a little voice jerry the king lawler goes they love him <laughs> brilliant <laughs> lawler completely choosing to not read the room on that one and just go oh no they like john cena that's absolutely fine the selective deafness of, of the commentary team that particular rumble as well um really memorable for, as you say, uh, that, that final sprint towards the end. Um, but it was the, the, the Shinsuke Nakamura moment for me that just, that I was, because uh, it really, it recognised, solidified, like how much passion there was for like the new blood and the old blood and how you had, I believe, and if I've, I believe I've got the right rumble, if I haven't, uh, please uh, correct me. It was the one, it was Finn Balor, Shinsuke Nakamura, John Cena and Randy Orton, John Cena and Roman Reigns at the very end. Yeah, that, that was That's the final thing. One. Finn Balor um, was the Iron Man. That's um, So, I mean, he put in an absolutely stellar performance, like, you know, real, real good Iron Man loving. But then as you say, right at the end, you've got, you've got Nakas, you've got Balor, um, Cena and Reigns and you look at that and considering you know if you cut back to 2018 and think about where the Rumbles were at that point we'd had a string of quite disappointing Rumbles um, you know partly through the fault of booking partly through some people not being who they were supposed to be at the time Daniel Bryan um, should have won a Rumble um, and so you're looking at that lineup and you're like well that this is a dead cert for either Cena making it three or Reigns making it two. It has to be. Like, they're not they're not going to give it to Shinsuke, are they? They're not. And then you can go around in circles for ages about, yeah. And, like, you, you can go around in circles, like, you know, what happened next, you know, the road to WrestleMania, maybe not the best thing. And perhaps Nakamura was, was mistreated from there out. But that moment where he drops his little hands and does the, come on! And then, can, uh, and then, out he goes, like, incredible. Yeah, Shinsuke winning the Rumble felt so good. And it, and, and it really brought back a lot of faith for me, watching the, the booking team going like, don't you dare, don't you have Roman eliminate Nakamura? Oh, you didn't? Well, okay. And then, as you say, what goes on from there is, a, is an underwhelming match between him and AJ at WrestleMania, which was a real shame. But, I mean, for that moment, I mean, I, it's, I, it's, it's everything, I think, coalesces around the 2015 Rumble. You know, that was the time when Roman wasn't Daniel Bryan, when he really needed to be Daniel Bryan. And God, that image, that image when he wins and like he's bleeding from his mouth and the rock's standing there holding his arm up in triumph and just looks baffled. It's an incredible <laughs> picture. I just, I look at it every time and I'm like, this is the perfect distillation of someone making the wrong choice. They don't understand. But now we're at a point with Roman Reigns 
where like they have leaned in to the fact that nobody likes him and he has become <laughs> the best character in the company hands down the best time to have turned roman reigns heel would have been 2015 and the second best time was when they did i think Absolutely. When did you become a wrestling fan? My sort of route into it is quite interesting. Um, I didn't have access to like watching things because uh, I didn't have Sky or anything like that. So it was quite difficult to get hold of at the time. But I loved the games. Uh, I remember the first time I played um, a wrestling game. It was a PlayStation 1, WWF Smackdown. And I loved the look and aesthetic of the thing. And it made me excited about uh, wrestling. Uh, like, you know, even though I wasn't actually seeing what was happening in real life, I could build my own little stories. And uh, that continued all the way through, like, Here Comes the Pain on PS2, I think probably one of the best games of all time. Uh, and I loved the Rumble then. I'd just, I'd just play Rumbles over and over and over again just to see what would happen. Um, but my sort of my first experience with live wrestling was at, um, was Butlins in Skegness. And this is a big part of wrestling in the UK that I always like to tell American fans about. The the, the, the Butlins, the holiday camp shows, like the, the camp shows is what a lot of British wrestlers will will use to, to cut their teeth. So was it a WWE Butlin show or was it like a British wrestling Butlin show? It was a British wrestling one. I remember that. You'll have to forgive me. My memory is fuzzy. It was, it was a, this would have been around 2004, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and my one big uh, memory, and I think, you know where I'm going with this, they had an over-the-top broke battle royale, uh, <laughs> otherwise known as. And uh, my one distinct memory is that there was a tag match earlier in the night, and there were these two two massive sort of like, well, well two hosses, but like, you know, in the vein of your giant haystacks or your big daddies. Uh, and I remember they wore orange overalls. And huge they were, absolutely enormous. And I remember one was called Hull. I remember I was. I, was, I, was, I, I was, hope is in the boat. I was. I was about to. I was about to say you might have been thinking of the UK Pitbulls potentially. That sounds like it could have been the Pitbulls potentially, but maybe they were going under a different name at the time. Because one was definitely called Hull. <laughs> but I remember it so distinctly. <laughs> uh, but that's. But that is, as you say, in the vein of like. Big Daddy Giant Haystacks, just big lads throwing each throwing people around in a rumble, and and it was rest. This is this was British wrestling sort of coming out of a, a really weird time because we had at this point it was um, tribute shows, it was UK Undertaker, UK Kane, and the the indie scene in the UK was trying to find its feet once more. And I love the fact that that was your first. So you did you go into that sort of with any knowledge of wrestling, or was it just a case of there's a show on whilst we are on holiday? We'll take you to see it just to shut you up and you loved it well it was <laughs> um so my, as i say my knowledge of wrestling at that point was largely through the the games and sort of what i could gather from the early internet um you know this is pre-youtube even so you know my knowledge there was limited uh this was just uh the entertainment that evening you know it wasn't anything sort of like specific it wasn't sort of like a special trip the entertainment that evening was oh we're gonna put on it we're gonna put on a wrestling show and like I wasn't upset by that, but like we were going to go anyway, so um, it was it was a great opportunity. I just he was definitely called Hull. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna Google. I'm gonna see if I can find anything on Google. And I remember because when he was eliminated from the battle royale, he went over the top rope and landed directly in front of me on his bum, and he was crisscross applesauce, sat there weeping, and it was genuinely one of the greatest <laughs> moments because he was a heel and I didn't like him. I've got UK wrestlers from Hull. 
and it's giving me Nathan Cruz. Um, <laughs> well, do you know what? We've, we've put this out into the world. If you are Hull, because I thought you might have been thinking of bulk, but if you're definitely saying it's Hull, um, then... Uh, it's definitely Hull. Okay, if you are Hull, reach out. You landed in front of me during a battle royale in Butlins. And it changed Ethan's life forever. <laughs> So with yourself though, Ethan, as well, like you've you you you, you discovered the uh, you discovered the world of acting quite early on, and there was always a passion there. Was there ever any interest in maybe trying the wrestling malarkey yourself? I still sometimes in 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 the in the in the long dark nights of the soul, I do sometimes lie there and think, oh, I'd make a good heel manager though. I would. Um, I never had like the the uh, the athleticism, I think, to be sort of like uh, a main contender. Um, and I was fine with that. You know, that's that, that's OK. But I do I do have pretensions to being quite a good heel manager. I think I could take a bump or two, like, you know, to pop the crowd. Who knows? I'm, I'm, I'm manifesting it. I'm putting it out there into the world. We're going to find Hull and I'm going to be a heel manager. <laughs> I'm going to be Hull's manager. That's how we're going to do this. <laughs> it all comes full circle. And the dream is realised. The dream is realised. <laughs> the <boy laughs> dream. <laughs> What inspired you to get into uh, into the world of acting in the first place? What was the inspiration there? It seemed so trite, but it was literally just being exposed to drama in a curricular space for the first time, uh, which was essentially when I started secondary school, uh, which was also around 2004. So there were a lot of pivotal moments happening in my life at that time. Uh, but I discovered drama there and I found sort of two things. One, that I really, really enjoyed it. And two, that I kind of had a knack for it. Um, comic timing and things like that came to me quite naturally. Uh, so I thought, well, let, let, let's, let's, let's run this up the flagpole and see how far we go. And then follows amateur musical theatre, then follows taking it to um, sixth form, A-level, and then finally on to university uh, where I studied drama and creative writing. And then partway into the second term of my first year, I get a call to go and audition for Bad Education. Uh, I go in and I get it. And then two weeks later, I'm on a professional TV shoot wondering what the hell happened. Wow, that quickly, it just rolled around. Yeah, I was 19 years old and I hadn't even finished my degree. How, how did that, how did that, like, was it just a case of they were just looking for people and you just threw your, threw your hat in the ring for it? Uh, so my understanding was that most of the cast was in place by that point. And they were looking for sort of like a, they were looking for a Joe, essentially. And there's some people in the mix, but they decided to open up the audition out. And so uh, I was put forward by my then agent, who was uh, um, the husband and wife team that ran the amateur musical theatre company that I did uh, all the amateur musical theatre with. Uh, so I had a little connection there. Uh, in I go. And um, yeah, they were, as I say, not far away from shooting and sort of still floundering around uh, for a Joe. And um, they decided to take a punt on me. And um, yeah, so it's all their fault is what I'm saying. <laughs> you said in interviews in the past that you you owe so much to that gig because it came so quick and everybody was, you know, it seems like there was a lot of love for you amongst everybody there. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it, it, I think it helps that like um, setting it in a school um, so I'm so sorry, the recycling vans arrived. You might be able to hear that. <laughs> Did you put your bin out? <laughs> 
Yeah, of course I do. Well, glass and plastics. It's not. It's not proper bin day until next week. Right. Fair enough. Fair this enough. is not. What, this is not the question that you are. <laughs> it's, it's good to know, though. It's good to know that you recycle. Being set in a school, um, like you know, we had a certain level, set of archetypes. You know, we had. You know, my my role is sort of like the the put upon chubby kid. You know, we have the bully. We have the, the theatre kid. Like you know. All of those archetypes are recognisable. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with using archetypes because they're archetypes for a reason. And the reason is, is that people were able to connect with it in a way that was sort of, you know, I, I felt kind of a lot of responsibility for it in a way, especially playing sort of like a kid who was being, you know, put upon and in certain aspects bullied. Um, so I, I recognised the weight of that on my shoulders. And um, it's, it's, it was a good way to set me up for how I conduct myself with my acting moving forward. Because uh, I always think to myself, right, well, I need to put everything that I've got into this because there are people out there who could end up relying on me for it. And like, you know, I don't I don't think of it as sort of like a weight on my shoulders or like some kind of grand destiny or anything like that. Um, but just simply that, you know, people connect to certain characters in a certain ways. So you've just got to do your best job. And I think that's something that bad education taught me um, simply by dint of, you know, it being my first exposure to people uh, reacting to my work in real time near enough so from there like because because bad education was w- w- was such a, a well-received series and it throws you into the acting world so quickly uh, where where do you go from there because you is, is there uh, there's there must be a passion to to continue to push up uh into and into more and more projects from there so initially i you know we we, we had no idea what was going to happen like, you know, we made we made series one. It was for BBC three, you know, a digital only channel. There's nothing wrong with that. But like, you know, you think to yourself, what what is the legs on this? Like, you know, it was largely untested uh, and it comes out and it breaks records. And so they're like, right, OK, now we want a series two and a series three and eventually a film. Um, so but you, you got to remember in between the shooting of it, which was in the February, uh, March of um, 2012, uh, through to the release, which was more towards the autumn, I'd near enough thought to myself, well, that was fun. Um, you know, what a dalliance that was with with um, with acting in a professional setting. Um, I don't need to think about that again because it's never going to happen. And then suddenly it does start happening. And then I'm talking to um, my now agent. And, like, you know, we're connecting and, like, auditions are starting to come in. And it's like... I okay, we're, we're, we're doing this. We're making a go of this. Like something could happen here. And so essentially, I mean, I've always described it um, as being 99% luck. But once you've had that lucky break, you just have to hang on and hope that you can maintain. It's all graft from then on in. So, I mean, this, to, we'll touch back into the acting in a second because, you know, we'll, we'll move, we'll, we'll lead you into many other projects like Horrible Histories and, of course, Afterlife that everybody's talking about. But... We are here to talk about wrestling. So to get us back onto track just a little bit, uh, what would you like your second match to be for your desert island, Ethan? Uh, I, I worry. I'm looking at my choices and I feel I may be um, accused of some recency bias. <laughs> uh, but, um, but, you know, I'm an AEW boy, so I'm moving on to the AEW stuff now. And um, an oft overlooked match, I think. Uh, I am choosing the triple threat for the AEW World Championship at Double or Nothing, May 30th, 2021. Uh, Kenny Omega versus Pac and Orange Cassidy. For me, I think represents one of the things that I love about AEW, which is it's just pure work rate. Like, 
you know, we, we can talk about, I mean, a lot of people would maybe pick one of the sort of more high-flying ones. I mean, I did um and ah for a long time about whether putting uh, the Bucks versus the Lucha Brothers in a steel cage on there, just, just for the sheer insanity of it all. But for about 15 to 20 minutes, these three start at 200% and stay there. <laughs> like, it is constant. Like, you know, the near falls, the, the, the big finishes... It just keeps moving at such a clip. Like these three are absolutely at the top of their game, and they're still able to maintain the storytelling and the drama. You know, even as it's even as it's going on, like you know, you've got all these spots happening simultaneously, but every single near fall, you're on your heart's in your mouth. Uh, I think the three of them are very, very good at the delayed kick out of two, which always helps. Um, and it's it's one of those things where you could. You could let yourself believe that Pac could be the AEW World Champion or Cassidy. This could be it for Kenny Omega. And that that that's the kind of wrestling I love, where you have a situation where it feels impossible for either of... Well, if, if it's a one-on-one, it feels impossible for any of those men to lose. That's the joy of a match like that, where you literally are guessing all the way through who's actually going to win the thing. And that's that's where there's a joy. When um, I'm, I don't know how much you get to show or talk about wrestling with non-wrestling fans, but I'm always intrigued as to how people you know around you react to wrestling as a whole, but maybe Orange Cassidy. I'm, I'm the biggest wrestling fan I know, uh, <laughs> which means that I'm not... Uh, uh, my, And I mean that in the sense that my, my particular circle... Um, there aren't many wrestling fans in there. Um, but I do occasionally try to push interesting little videos or like, you know, show them something. And funny enough, you bring up Orange Cassidy. And that's one of the ones that I always like to do because it's it's just a funny gimmick. It's just funny to watch. It's pure clowning. Um, the bit that, um, the one that always um, is, is the one I tend to turn to most is, funny enough, Orange Cassidy versus Pac. Um, that initial one quite early in AEW's lifespan where we first got the um, uh, the light super kicks of death and the uh, the hands in pockets, incredible athleticism with the vaults and the flips and the kip-ups and everything like that. Because you look at that and you go, yeah, it's silly, but he's really good though, that Orange Cassidy. He, he is. He's very, very... And I love in that match, in particular, the one you mentioned there with Pac, there is a beautiful moment. And Pac is so serious. He's a serious Geordie. And there is, there's a moment in that, a glorious moment, where Pac corpses when he sees Orange Cassidy rolling towards him. And you'd never catch Pac out very... You don't catch Pac out at all, if very often. But in that glorious moment, you see Pac sort of cracking a little... Trying, like, moving away, like, trying to hide the fact that he's smiling <laughs> away. And I love it. It's so good. It's so good. Anybody on the set of Afterlife wrestling fans? Not so far as I'm aware. They didn't make themselves known. Yeah, maybe, maybe there's maybe there's some stealth ones around. I feel like Gervais might be an Impact fan. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> he gives off that kind of vibe. He gives he? off a fan that he, he, he likes Impact wrestling. How did you come to get involved with Afterlife? Uh, so really, just by the um the the, the standard way of things. Um, and when it comes to sort of like the acting industry, I just went up for an audition. Mm. Um, span round uh, the casting director was a lady called Tracy Gillum um, who people who work in my industry have such fondness for because she's absolutely incredible a number of um, you know huge shows that everyone loves she she is she has casted them and she's extremely good and I owe 
at the very least 75% of my career to her. Um, so that's good. Uh, so I went around. Um, it was very, very simple because uh, at that time in series one, um, as as the, the, the character later expanded, but it was the character was called Recorder Kid uh, back then. And so all I had to do was just a little bit of, you know, physical theatre with the recorders. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, got the part and it was like, right, well, it's, it's a day, um, you know, just, just one day to go in. Uh, well, I could not have been on that set for longer than two hours. Uh, you know, I got, got to meet Ricky. I got to meet Tony Way. I uh, got to meet Joe Hartley, who I was doing the scene with. And it was like, okay, cool. Brilliant. Um, right. Cheers, everyone. See you later. And off, off I went. And uh, then, <laughs> then my career fell apart. And uh, I went off to do pizza delivery for a while because the roles, they just weren't coming in, Tom. They just weren't coming in. The idea for the part sort of emerged simultaneously as my, my own career was in the, was in the, was in the, the doldrums. Um, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, it was, it's, it's so interesting, I think, because in it, series one and series two of Afterlife bookended the, the last year in pizza delivery. So it was the last thing I did before I went in and then it was what pulled me out at the other end. Not only are you coming back, we want you in all six episodes and your character has a name now, an actual Christian name. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was absolutely incredible. And uh, you know, I, 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 I handed him a notice and everything like that. And I, right. I'm off. I'm off to go make television again, lads. Bye. <laughs> Uh, so basically what I'm saying is you remember I mentioned that thing about it being 99% luck yes yeah it's 99% luck like it always seems to come about just when I need it I've been very fortunate in that regard is it is there something to be said though because I, I get that people say it's, it's a lot about luck but surely you put enough into that role that they felt this is a character that can bring us more to a degree I mean I, I, I don't I don't like to toot my own horn but I like to think I'm all right at acting um, but I do think a lot of it comes down to being the right actor in the right room in front of the right people. Um, one of my early roles uh, was um, uh, in a, a sitcom that sadly only went for one series called Trying Again on Sky Living, uh, which was a co-production between Simon Blackwell and Chris Addison. And um, in my audition, I just did a bit of business. Like he, So the character, he's nervous for a driving test. And so to hide his pit stains, uh, he attaches um, sanitary towels to his armpits and in the audition I just sort of did this little gesture where I sort of lifted it up and looked profoundly upset with myself and it was that bit of business that caught Simon Blackwell's eye and then got me on that show and so I wonder sometimes like yeah acting skill is is, is necessary to be able to do what you do but like I was able to do that in front of like that that scene that recorded scene in front of Ricky on that day potentially when he was in a good mood and you know, uh, he, he he saw something there. So yeah, sure. It, like you know, skills a big part of it, but it really is so much down to where you are and what you're doing while you're there, and who else is there. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I want to just quickly touch back on how, you know, between Series 1 and Series 2 of Afterlife, you've gone back into pizza delivery. And I think a lot of people miss this sometimes i guess they just assume once you've done a, a, a hit show like that then you're made and you're off and you're away and it's really not the case so the fact that you know you did that show you did the episode of it and then you know you, normal life comes back but what is what goes through your head during that year where you are a, a part of something that that is so successful but you can't quite climb back up that ladder you're you're metaphorically touching the money in the bank briefcase and you're you've got fingertips on it but you can't quite get there somebody keeps power bobbing you off the ladder and last every chance you get what goes through your mind as you're working through all that <laughs> I, I love the way you phrase that question i really do I'm, so, I'm romantically in love with it um what goes through my head i mean it was supposed to be a stopgap, like you know because uh, the reason why I chose pizza delivery specifically is because I thought to myself, well, I can work evenings and I'll still have the day free to go out and audition. So really it was just supposed to be a stopgap. It's like, this won't, this won't be long. This is temporary. You know, I'll be here for what, six to 10 weeks. And then that turns into three months, turns into six months, turns into a year. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I should stress I'm not, because it's difficult when you talk about this, because like there's a, there's a tendency to maybe, word it in a bad way, which makes it sound like I'm better than pizza delivery. And I'm absolutely not. That's definitely not the point that I'm making. Um, more so that like, it's not where I wanted to be. Like, you know, I, I didn't want to become uh, a, a regional manager. You know, <laughs> I wanted to be an, an actor still. And so it's kind of a, a combination of intense panic and slow burn fear at the same time. Because day to day, you're thinking to yourself, well, what, where, where are the auditions? I need them. I need them. I need them. And then on the other hand, you think it to yourself, the longer I'm out of the public consciousness, the less likely I'm going to have to get back in because momentum is such a hard thing to maintain. Um, I mean, the, the, the parallels with like wrestling booking is uh, really quite extraordinary when you think about it. Cause once, once if, if you're hot, you're the, you're the best thing in the world, but if you're cold, no one will touch you. And it can just be one event that stimmies that momentum and stops everything moving forward. And you're so with, with with all that going on, and you're you're you know you you're worried about going cold all the time. And I think it's something that probably a lot of actors like yourself go through. But the um, you 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 go back to season two. But what's the um, what what was the how were people that you worked with in that pizza delivery place with you? Was there 
was was there a weirdness about it? Were they were they supportive of you? Did they want you to get back out there? Was what was the vibe with the people you work with? I, I was very lucky to have a, a clutch of um, really kind managers um, uh, who were very supportive of, of of me and what I was doing, and like you know. Because uh, eventually, when I said, like, you know, oh, I'll work nights, it'll be fine. Eventually, I was taking every hour God sent um, to try and do it. But they were very kind with being flexible if I needed to dash off and uh, audition for something. Uh, I don't think I honestly could have worked alongside any anyone better in terms of sort of like how they could compensate for me, but also um, their support. And it was a re- it was genuinely a really nice place to work. Like you know, again, I'm I'm very I'm very cautious to sort of not not denigrate the profession. I had a really good time. Like it was it was a, a genuinely nice place to work. Um, but I, again, it's it was sort of like this is great, but like this is at the back of my head, I'm thinking to myself, this this needs to be temporary mm. because I, I I need I need to get back. I need to I need to go do some acting because genuinely, it's the only thing I know how to do, and I'm good at it. So let's. Let's let's get back to that, shall we? And you got back to it with Afterlife Series Two and Season Three, where you have a, a, a much uh, beefier role in the show. A lot of the time spent uh, hanging around Brian, played by David Earl, and uh, there is a beautiful chemistry oh. between you two. And and I and I really hope does this transitions away from the camera. I would hope uh, for sure. I mean, interestingly enough, if you go back to Season Two and rewatch it, there is some scenes, but. There's not actually that much between uh, James and Brian that we see on camera or in the script. Um, it was one of those things where because we were spending time in the newsroom and weren't necessarily the key focus of the scene, we'd be in the back of shot, like mucking around, like, you know, doing something funny. And uh, the cake scene being a great example of that. And so this kind of natural chemistry sort of formed between myself and and, and David. And I think uh, again, uh, Ricky's got a really good eye. He spotted that and thought to himself, "Well, that that that's the money relationship. You know, that's the one that we can carry forward into series three. And uh, what what a pleasure it was to spend so much time around uh, around uh, Brian's mad brain. I want to always I always like to talk about uh, stories from the set. And there's one that that caught my eye in another interview you did. Um, I think it was one of the, or it might be one that, that David did. Um, there was the scene with you in the bath that that got too much, <laughs> and it had because it was very ad libbed and very free flowing. Could you tell the story that we're talking about? Uh, so this was um, this is uh, for those who haven't seen Afterlife series three. Minor visual spoiler: this is the second time I'm naked in a bath in this series, <laughs> and um, <laughs> the lines as written uh, sort of gave this. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how deep I can go because I do not want to get your channel demonetized and nuked. Do you know what? It's fine. It's the it's the podcast feed, so it's fine. We can fucking swear and stuff, so no worries about that. At all. Okay, so <laughs> in the script, <laughs> Brian talks about how um, normally in this bathroom there'd be a stack of porn, and he can shoot ropes like a good one. <laughs> We get we, we get the script as written. It's there. We've got it. It's canned. Now it's time for play. And so the, the cum shot ends up in different places. Uh, in, it Sometimes it ends up just on my face, sometimes in my eye, down my throat was one that ended up in the bloopers. Uh, and then to carry on uh, with uh, on that theme, uh, he then I should stress as well, while I'm having this bath, he's sat on the toilet having a poo. And so once he's done that once he's done that dialogue uh 
ending up wherever it is, you know, in my eye, on my elbow, on my knee, or whatever it is, up my bum. <laughs> uh, he then simulates taking taking a poo, um, <laughs> describing it as like trying to pass a zeppelin. And I think Ricky, at a certain point, realised that we were gonna have to we're gonna have to roll it back a little bit because the scene as is, I don't think Netflix would have gone for it. <laughs> I really don't. It's you're treading a fine line at all times with Brian Gittins. And I think we may, we may be overstepped the line, <laughs> but you know, Ricky's got that footage. Now he can, he can watch that whenever he wants. <laughs> That's know. one for his own personal collection to keep forever. <laughs> and why not? Why not? <laughs> How did um how did how did you get on with Ricky? Because obviously you you know being in the show, pulled in different directions. You I don't know how much time you got with him, but how did you get on with Ricky when you were with? Ricky's a great person to work for. Um, uh, famously, I mean, you you send any person who's worked with him onto you know a, a breakfast show or a magazine show, and they'll sit on the sofa and talk about how he wants to always finish early, which is true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the long normal long shooting days are condensed down by three hours, which is amazing because you get an opportunity to rest and relax. And like, if you have a family, go and see them because normally you can't do that when you're working. Um, he is an incredible director uh, who works with such economy and such speed. But the fact that he also gives us the freedom to play is what makes that set so fun. And the like the real genuine freedom that you have when you just like the camera's on and it's just like go see what happens. Um, Ricky's a really nice guy. Like you know he he treats everyone on the set with with respect. He allows his actors to play, and he, he you know these are pyramid structures. So if Ricky's at the top because actor writer director. He's at the top, and so you know everything else trickles down, and it's a it's a lovely pyramid to be in. Uh, a real a real pleasure to work with. That's lovely to hear. I mean, I'm gonna uh, now. If you haven't seen uh, season three of, of Afterlife, this might be where you want to spin on a little bit because I do want to ask uh, about the last episode, about those uh, about about sort of the way that it all wraps up, and and you may not be able to tell me you might do it all feels very much the end like that is that's the last season of afterlife we're gonna get uh that's that's what ricky has as has said in in interviews and i believe it is the correct choice yeah. uh i don't know how much we how much more we could pile on at this point i think the the the, the point has been made and i think better to go out on a high than sort of drag it out just for the sake of dragging it out i think and ricky and thing is with Ricky Gervais and the work that he does. We talk about Office, talk about the X, talk about extras, talk about uh, every, all those seasons he's done, all those shows he's done. They they are finite. They they don't run and run unless they're the American versions, in which case they'll just go on to the end of time. But the UK versions are very finite, uh, and I always like the, the 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 integrity that comes from that. Like even though the Office was an absolute smash hit. Ricky Gervais knew it's going to be two seasons and a Christmas special, and then then that's that. We're gonna we're gonna tie a bow in it. And with this as well, you know there will be calls for like a season four, a season five. But Ricky's gonna go no three seasons, and that's it. And the ending itself, um, I, I think the ending has been there's different. I think there's different interpretations you can make of it because the ending um, shows him walking off um, with the dog, with the wife, and and everybody vanishes. Which which gives you the impression that that in this last episode he dies. It is an interpretation. Um, 
I think that final shot for me exists more as a metaphor than as a literal thing. Because right. uh, we also have like the visual of the, the leaves changing. Um, so it, this is not to say that, you're, uh, that that interpretation is wrong. It is a metaphor. You can interpret it in as many different ways as you like. Um, uh, simply from my own personal um, feelings on it, it represents life going on. You know, we have the transition of time. We have people coming in and out of his life. And uh, so that for me, that's sort of, that, that's sort of the kind of the thesis statement of, of the show in a nutshell. Like, you know, we have all this stuff about grief. We have, a, you know, moments of high comedy and moments of high drama. But at the end of it all, these are people living in a small town and life goes on, no matter what. And how you feel about that is... It's irrelevant in the grand scheme, but totally relevant on a micro level, because you know we're all the essentially the main characters in our own story. Right. And like you know, Afterlife could have been you know you, you could have shot Afterlife from the perspective of Kath, say um, Diane Morgan's character. You'd have a wildly different show, but I do think it would have the same sort of thematic drive, especially if you shot it from Matt's perspective, um, uh, played by Tom Basden. Like you know he. Yeah, the, something that um in the dialogue touches on in series three, which is when Tony Ricky's character apologizes um to Matt, simply saying, "I lost my wife, but you lost your sister." Yeah, and you never had, you you gave me the space to grieve, but I never did the same back. Is that final bit at the end? That sort of final segment that those two have segment like a wrestling would. Um, is segment. <laughs> this, this last promo when Tony, that they have. when Tony turns face at the end. Um but it's it's that far now. It was it was a face all the way through. He was like Steve Austin. Um there was even glass shattering in, in the one episode. Um but uh, <laughs> but it's that final bit it's that bit at the end like you say where he and, and so much of it is oh it just it punches you right in the right in the heart. Um and it's the bit where he says, like, I always thought that, you know, not caring was the superpower when actually it's the opposite. And it's the idea of, 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 of making people feel good. That's the superpower. And that's it, it means so much because that's something that I as a person have always bought into is that there's so much anger in the world and everybody's so desperate to to, to shout about how tough things are and drag down things they don't like. And, and we as a people are so reluctant to share the good and and make people feel good and there is no better feeling in the world than making someone feel good and I, and, and that is the real message that comes comes it's it, it's been there the whole time but it really comes home at the very end which i think is really really beautiful um yeah i really and that's, that's that last episode again i watched it before i came to speak to you and i was just like oh okay <laughs> That's uh... still reeling. And now we need to talk about wrestling. Yeah, talk about wrestling <laughs> okay, so your final match, Ethan, for your DVD. We've had. We've had. Uh... Oh God, well, that was a segue. I didn't realize it was a segue. Seg like a boss. Um, we went from Royal Rumble 2018, Shinsuke Nakamura's big night. Come on, uh, AEW Revolution Pack versus Cassidy versus Kenny Omega for the AEW title. What would you like your third and final match to be? E? Right, so you know I said about recency bias. CM Punk versus MJ. Yeah, from the February 2nd episode of Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> now that, there is a lot of recency bias going on here. I mean, I get it. I get it. But what, do you know what? Here's what's nice, Ethan. Here's what's nice is that when we have these, these shows normally, it's people reflecting on, 
you know, wrestling of the 80s, the 90s, the early noughties. It's nice to have someone like yourself on who's going, wrestling's still good now. Let's talk yes, about it, it now. <laughs> it's true. It, it's so good. And like between those two AEW matches that I've picked, I've picked one that was all work rate. And in this one, I've selected one that was just sublime storytelling. Mm. Absolutely sublime. Like, I, you think to yourself, like, you know, some matches are destined to go long. Like, you know, recently we've had um, uh, Danielson versus Page, which, you know, those, those are a couple of really long matches. Um, and I like that they're sort of leaning into that. So MJF Punk goes 40 minutes thereabouts. And we have one major false finish about 15 minutes in. And then the rest of it is just incredible, like selling of limb work from um, from Punk, the increasingly sort of unraveling mind of MJF. And you have, I think in those two, is this again, maybe it's because I'm fast approaching the 10 year anniversary of my acting career, but I look at Punk and MJF and punk left the industry just before mjf joined it and now you have this match this match between the wily old veteran and the young up-and-comer and they are both so good like they represent both i mean for punk he represents like you know wrestling's past but also wrestling's present and then confronting wrestling's future i truly believe that we're going to be talking about mjf in the same way that we talk about Triple H in the same way that we talk about Shawn Michaels in the same way that we talk about Stone Cold. He has greatness written all over him. And I think it was absolutely, spoiler alert, it was absolutely the right decision to have MJF go over here. Do you know what? CM Punk is this kind of guy that would 100% get behind something like that. And the story they told in the run-up to it, those battle of words uh, across different episodes of Dynamite, the barbs that were thrown back and forth, MJF saying that, uh, you know, you're straight edge, but you look like a meth addict. CM Punk saying you're, you're a less relevant version of The Miz. And it's just, oh, it's been so good. And then they have the chemistry together and the, and the, and it leads. And the great thing is it's a match that could lead to more matches. This doesn't feel like quite like the end of the road uh, for these two yet, which is what I really, really like. What have you made on the whole of CM Punk's return to WWE, or to, to wrestling rather than WWE? <laughs> uh, I've, really, I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I, I know, uh, I, I, I think, here's the thing, doing this now after he's had... I think it was an 11 match winning streak. Um, but the matches that he had were always competitive. They were always like, you know, good matches. And he's putting over uh, young AEW talent. I think his presence on the roster has done wonders for certain people. And I love the fact that he's using his legacy to push more people forward. I think that can only be a net positive. And heck, the boy can still go. <laughs> like a 40 minute match that's not easy to do it's it's it and and that is where like the fact that he's been away for so long it's a, he's a, he's refreshed mentally physically emotionally and you feel that when he's in there as well and i think return to AEW was absolutely the right thing to do i feel like it's a bit a much better homestead for him you can tell that and this is this is where like i see so much of this with AEW guys there's a there's such a for for the for the most part there is such a, a creative fulfillment that you see from yes. them, which you don't see anywhere else. I I, I sense that. I mean, um, uh, 
uh, Chris Jericho talks about it quite often on on, on his podcast about how sort of like you know the freedom to construct their own stories and like pitch and like you know it's it feels like so much more of a collaborative atmosphere uh than than other promotions and i think you can you can sense that because you know it allows them to go on these sorts of flights of fancy of like mjf punk or like you know i think in the end we got like 90 minutes of Paige danielson with those two matches combined that like you know would they have and, and so close together as well like those sorts of flights of fancy are great, and like, I, I, I don't know. I just, I love the company. I love what they, I love their ethos, and I love what they're doing. And you know, again, I, I've, I've, I've noticed, um, like on my list, I haven't included any um, women's wrestling, which is, you know, that, that's a shame on my part. But I thought the recency bias thing was more funny. <laughs> uh, but like, you know, <laughs> you can, you can talk about. I mean, someone like Serena Deeb at the minute on sort of the beginnings of a monster heel run um Britt baker absolutely incredible talent right right at the top one of the pillars of AEW for sure like this is this is such a good time to be a wrestling fan like so often we have like wrestling fans not that not that they're always angry and always want to complain but like i feel like we're probably in the best place we've been in quite a long time in terms of the breadth and scale of the wrestling that we're able to watch and the talent that's coming up. Like, this this is a good time to be a wrestling fan. It's what brought me back. It's why I'm here now. I love, I love, I love that you said that because I said almost exactly the same thing. Last week, last month, it's kind of a thing where I just say, like, when everyone complains about, like, oh, this isn't quite right now, this isn't quite... This is the greatest time. There is so much choice. There is so many options. If you don't like one, you can like the other. But even if you don't like any of the modern stuff, you have access to every single wrestling match pretty much ever made on streaming platforms and, and the like. Like, it's it's the best time to be a wrestling fan in 2022. It genuinely is. It's so good. I mean, I, I don't have the, the WWE Network at the minute because, as I say, I normally touch in for sort of like Royal Rumble and stuff like that. I watched, in preparation for this podcast, the 2018 Royal Rumble on YouTube for free. That's very kind of them to do like, that for you. You know, they, they, the biggest match at a big four pay-per-view and it's for free on YouTube. You can just go and watch it. They've got loads of them up there as well. They do chuck up the random little bit of gold. I think the other day uh, they popped on Brock Lesnar versus Hulk Hogan from 2002. I was like, whoa, oh, forgot my. about this little bugger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, Brock. <laughs> great fun watching Brock just batter Hogan. What a dream. It was great fun. But <laughs> so it's no, weird looking back now, considering when Brock was a prospect as opposed to oh, being the end level boss. That's it. And, and how quick he went from prospect to end level boss. He was like, it was, this is what the, uh, he was truly the highlight of 2002, 20 years ago this year, since yes. the, the Brock anniversary, the 20th Brock anniversary. Uh, <laughs> if they WWE use that now, they're in trouble. Um, but the, because he went from like, he debuted the night after WrestleMania 18 and he was in the main event with the rock by SummerSlam and it didn't feel out of place. It didn't feel rushed. It didn't feel forced. It didn't no. feel contrived. It didn't feel like a mismatch. It felt perfect. And it was. And and and, and now he is, as you say, the, the final boss of wrestling. I mean, uh, you could almost use it as a verb now, like, you know, to Lesnar someone to the championship. <laughs> you know, just good booking 
on an absolute hulking monster. Yeah, we'll buy it. We'll buy it all day. Uh, Ethan, it has been a pleasure to chat wrestling and and life and the universe according to Ethan Lawrence with you. Uh, where can people go to keep up with everything that you're up to next, sir? Uh, well, uh, first of all, um, uh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, my socials are all unified. Uh, Ethan D. Lawrence. Uh, that's on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, Bad Education and Afterlife you can catch on Netflix. Uh, horrible histories you can catch on the iPlayer. Uh, it's it's all out there. You 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 find it. Can you give any little hints on what you're doing next? You know, it's start of the year, so everything's sort of trickling in. I've got as many irons in the fire as I possibly can, and just waiting for one to get hot. On behalf of everybody listening today and watching today on the Cultaholic Podcast feed, Ethan, don't forget it's bin day next week, and take the other bin out. You've done the recycling. Yeah, uh, absolutely, the bin big out. black bin for that one. Yeah. <laughs> 